I am absolutely convinced that when you have kids, there are things about the gospel and Jesus and the Bible and Christianity and life in general that you gain. There are elements to it that you gain that you wouldn't gain outside of having kids. Uh, Because of my five-year-old son, Cohen, uh, I have gained a greater understanding of and a greater appreciation for a variety of different things. And uh, both from a child's perspective of being a child of God and from a father's perspective of having a heavenly father, I've gained kind of a a, a new perspective on those things as Cohen grows. Um, One of the things I've gained a greater understanding of and appreciation for is how bizarre some children's books titles are. Now, if, you, if you're a parent and you search for certain children's titles, um, you come up with some really wacky, weird children's books titles. There are some demented people on our planet who make books. Now, I, as I was researching these, I wasn't going to necessarily... I have actually pictures of the books because I don't think you would believe me that these books actually exist unless I showed you the covers of these books. So uh, I just want to show you some of the things that I've had to encounter as a parent. Many of you as parents have probably uh, maybe had to look and see that these are actual children's books titles. Okay, the first one is uh, Everyone Poops, a real title of a book, because maybe they don't know that. (laughs) Maybe they think they're unique. What's happening to me? Am I the only one? You got to help them through through this process. Okay, the next one. (laughs) Everything I want to do is illegal. It's a real children's book title. What are they doing? <laughs> Everything I want to do is... A, that's a real book title for kids. I don't understand why anyone would read that to their kids. Okay, next one. <laughs> feelings and how to destroy them. <laughs> Who needs those pesky feelings? Real children's book title. <laughs> I don't know what's happening to our world. This is a real children's book title. Okay, um, next one. <laughs> it's not going to get any better when you grow up. This is it. This is all there is. This is all you have to look forward to. Buddy, you just, just hit them with it right in the beginning, right? Right when they can start reading, right when they can start understanding the human language of, you know, that they, they can understand this, but it's not going to get any better. This is it. Don't, don't set your highs. Don't set your uh, standard too high because it's only downhill from here. Oh, okay. The next one is ridiculous. Okay. Mommy drinks because you're bad. <laughs> Real children's book title. Mommy drinks because you're bad. I don't understand. I don't even understand. Who's reading that? Who's, re- who's going to the store and going, that looks like one. My- yep. That's one. We, we might want to get that one. All right. So, so I've gained a greater understanding. You can take that down. We've gained a greater understanding. I have of the idea the craziness of children's books. Um, I've also gained, though, much more deeper appreciation for much deeper things. Um, I've gained an appreciation for how much God wants me to draw close to him more than he wants me to do stuff for him or know things about him, that he wants me to draw close to him. My son has this, um, this tradition in the morning where uh, Sometimes when he wakes up, usually the first thing he wants to do just to kind of get out of his sleepiness is watch his morning show. And I'm usually still in my favorite chair, uh, reading a book or reading the Bible or doing whatever I do in the morning before he gets up. And uh, I'm usually still there doing that. And I try to finish that up before uh, watching that with him. But he will, every morning, if I'm not sitting with him, he will say, Daddy, come sit with me. Daddy, come, 
comes to, and he won't start the show until I'm there with him. He will move out of the way because I always sit down and he sits on my lap and we have this same, we sit the same way every time all cuddled up and Nuzzly pulls the blanket up and gets right in and we cuddle up and watch a show in the morning. And uh, that's a really cool thing for me. And because of that, because of his, um, his commitment to not watching the show unless I'm with him means a lot to me as a dad. That it's not the show that's as important, it's who he's watching it with that he seems to really value. Um, in his little five-year-old way. And so I can see that from a dad's perspective. I can see that my heavenly father wants me to draw close to him. He doesn't just want me to do stuff with, uh, for him. He doesn't just want me to know things about him, like facts, Bible facts, but he wants me to draw close to him. Um, I know that that's true, but now I kind of get it when I watch my son. I've gained, a ga- uh, I've gained a greater understanding and appreciation for what unconditional love is like from my heavenly father. I've gained a greater understanding of and appreciation for the purpose of discipline from my heavenly father. I've gained a greater understanding of and appreciation for how my willful disobedience hurts my heavenly father. In these ways and more, my life with God has grown in ways that without Cohen, uh, I would not have uh, those understandings. It would have been impossible. Kids are certainly blessings to us. Um, you know, when they're not screaming, I hate you. Uh, when they're not throwing a monstrous uh, rage because you told them not to draw markers on your brand, le- brand new painted walls. Uh, when you tell them that their diet has to consist more of mac and cheese, uh, ice cream, and candy, which if Cohen had his way, that's all he would eat, mac and cheese, ice cream, and candy. Um, other than that, they're pretty cool. They're really cool uh, creations that God blesses us with as parents. Um, my most recent area of growth because of Cohen in my life, uh, however, is how utterly deep my depravity goes and how insanely deep my heavenly father's patience is. As Cohen gets older, he continues to become more and more independent. He wants to test the waters more and more. He wants to see what he can get away with. He's become a master, a negotiator. If I say, hey, bud, we only have like 10 minutes more to to play this game, he'll go, how about 15? And I'll go, how about 12? And he'll go, deal. It's pretty cool. So we're always negotiating what he's supposed to do. Bud, you got to eat everything on your plate. How about I eat half of it? How about you eat all of it this time? No, how about I eat half of it? All right, whatever. So uh, he's always negotiating, trying to, trying to strike a deal. Um, but I know uh, to say he tries our patience at times would be the understatement of the century. Uh, however, through these experiences, I've learned two huge mega themes. I have learned that I am not inherently good. By watching him, he has to be taught to be good. He is not good on accident. He is bad on accident. He is, he is, um, he is, uh, he is the opposite of what you would want somebody to do most naturally. He has to be shown and taught and, um, and, and revealed to him what good is. Um, and when I, when I see what can seemingly instantaneously pour out of his mouth, uh, it causes me to pause and reflect on, um, on me, on the things that pour out of my mouth, just as naturally as uh, he does. And secondly, so first, I'm not inherently good. Uh, and second, I am not very patient. Uh, if I were vulnerable, I am at times uh, almost childish in my responses to him. He gets, he gets under my nerves like any parent uh, would with their kids. And I take things too personally. I know he's just acting out. He doesn't know what else to do with his frustration. He doesn't like the rules. He doesn't like the regulation we might have for him. He doesn't like what I just asked him to do. And so uh, he acts out and gets frustrated. And I take that too personally sometimes, and I react um, in a childish way at times. I think we all, in our worst moments, would say that we agree. As parents, we are really super glad that there is not a camera set up in our house and people are watching us work out our parenting skills. 
because we're not very good at it very often. And so uh, I know those two things. I am not inherently good, and I am not very patient. As Cohen gets older, I want to help him develop two big things. I want, him to, I want to earn his respect as a loving father. I want to earn his respect for me as a loving father. And I want to earn his trust in me uh, that I have his best interests in mind. Those are two really big things I want him to get from me, that he respects me as a loving father and, he, and, and that I earn these things, that, that I don't just tell him to do them, but that I earn them by the way that I am with him. Respect and trust. These are, these are much more difficult uh, qualities to teach someone, especially a five-year-old. You see, I don't just want him to blindly obey me, uh, anymore. Early on, sure. I just wanted him to listen. I say something, daddy says something, and I want you to listen. Uh, early on, he didn't really have the cognitive development uh, for things like this. These are much deeper ideas, respect and trust. I just wanted him to hear me and do it. Uh, but now I, I want things to go deeper than that. I want, uh, I could make him listen if I wanted to. I could force him to do what I want because I'm stronger than him. I'm smarter than him. I could outwit him all the time. I can outstrength him all the time. But I want willful obedience out of love, not forced oppression. I don't want forced oppression. I want willful obedience. And I want my patience with him to win his respect, and I want my love for him to win his trust. The truth is, this is exactly what God uses to woo us to him. This is what draws us to God. This is what draws us to him. His love for us demonstrated by his patience with us. There's something crucial that has to take place, that has to take effect in our hearts before we will surrender our lives to God. And here's the big picture. It'll be, if you're a note taker, we're going to have some things on the screen that'll pop up. You can feel free to write those down. Uh, so the first big picture, it's when we are up close and personal with our sin that we will begin to authentically draw close to him. When we are up close and personal with our sin, it puts us in a humble position. It doesn't allow our haughtiness or our arrogance to get in the way, our pride and our ego to get in the way. We are brought to a position where we can authentically draw close to him who loves and cherishes and desires, desires to forgive us. The truth is the more excuses we make for our sinfulness, the more likely we are to stiff arm God, run away from him, or become callous towards him. The less significant we make our sin, the less likely we are to draw close to God, repent of our sins, and even sense our need for him in the first place. This is an important place that we need to find ourselves or else at best, God becomes a good luck charm. At best, God becomes this, uh, this entity that we just try to get things from because we have nowhere else to go, so we just want him to give us what, our, what we actually want, not to give him what he actually deserves. And you see, the one thing working against Cohen in respecting me and developing trust in me is Cohen. He wants what he wants, and he wants it now. And he will sacrifice our relationship to get it. He will say things and respond in ways and, and say, and say uh, things to me that destroy, that could destroy our relationship. He says things like, I hate you at times. It just comes out of him. I hate you. I asked him to do a simple little thing. I hate you. Like, whoa, I came from, that's, that's, that's harsh. You're stupid. Says that once in a while. I know some of you that have him in your class, you're like, not my little Cohen. Oh yeah, your little Cohen. He might not say it to you because you haven't grown stupid yet. But someday you tell him no, you'll be in the stupid crowd. 
So he will continue, uh, he, he, uh, so he wants what he wants, he wants it now, and unfortunately he'll sacrifice our relationship to get it, but I will never give up on him. I will continue to love him in spite of his horrendous behavior, back-talking and disrespectful words, because I don't require his love to love him. I just love him. And because of that love, I refuse to give up on him. The one thing working against us, me and you, in respecting, developing, trusting God is us. We want what we want and we want it now. And unfortunately, we'll sacrifice our relationship with God to get it. But he will not give up on us. He will continue to love us in spite of our horrendous behavior, backtalking and disrespectful words, because he doesn't require our love to love us. He just loves us. And because of the love that he has, he refuses to give up on us. So I want to use a well-known story from the Old Testament in order to uh, deepen our understanding of and appreciation for the gospel today. What I hope to do, um, which I want to do every week, is I want to uh, help those of you in this room who have a relationship with God to deepen that relationship, to make you more excited about that relationship, to help you draw even closer to that God that you love. And he will then speak to your heart and reveal to you things that maybe need to change, that maybe you need to begin to do, that maybe you need to stop to do, that maybe you need to change the way you believe things, that your perception of truth, uh, whatever it is that God will speak to you, what I want to do is draw you close to him and let him speak to your heart. And if, you're, if the, those of you that are in this room, if there, if there is uh, some that, that don't know Jesus, that have never given their life to him, he's, he's some guy that other people know, but you've never really taken that step of faith to, to make him your Lord, to make him your Savior, then what I would say to you is I hope to show you who this God is that we in this room that have given our lives, that's who we've given our lives to, this mer- marvelous, loving, heavenly Father. That, that woos us to him and draws us to him by his care and his devotion to us. Um, and to be honest and upfront, this is a difficult message initially because it will force us to take a look at who we really are, who we really are, not the polished version of ourselves that we hope to trick people into seeing, but our true selves. However, it will also enable us to get a better idea of who God is, who he really is, not the watered-down version of God that we're tricked into seeing, but his true self. So let's look at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20 to get us started here. We're going to use a a New Testament verse to kind of look at an Old Testament story. So it says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in, in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. No, only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. Now, I want to be clear about things. We're going we're to be looking at the story of Noah. It's probably a very popular story. Many of you know this story, I'm guessing. Um, if not, then you're in for a treat. This is a, this is a very cool story of the, of the Bible. Uh, but it, it, it shouldn't stay as a story. It's not just something in the, in the Old Testament that helps us um, uh, become better people. It points us to a better Savior. It points us to the Savior of the world who is Jesus. So I want to be clear about a couple things, though, from the story of Noah that I think, um, unfortunately, some people uh, don't realize. Just to be clear, Noah was number one. He was not a good man who was better than everyone else. Oftentimes we look at Noah like he was the only good guy on the planet, and he wasn't. This is what Genesis 6-5 says. It says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. Evil all the time. Nothing good ever in the heart of 
all mankind, including Noah. He was not a better guy than everyone else. He was wicked just like everyone else. Secondly, Noah was not a godly man who impressed God above everyone else. It says in Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor with God. Now that word favor is synonymous with what we would use as grace. The Hebrew word here and the Greek word grace in the New Testament are very synonymous. So we have this idea that God is, is displaying unmerited, now what is grace? Unmerited favor. Grace is God giving, supplying, provided, providing unmerited, undeserved favor. And in our day, we have Jesus that supplies it for us. Our undeserved and unmerited favor is found in Jesus. And we're going to see something very unique here um, as we get into this um, of how Noah was going to find that. But it says, Noah found favor with the Lord. Uh, and, and thirdly, Noah was, uh, that Noah, this is a, a myth, Noah, that Noah was the only person allowed on the ark. Noah warned people of God's judgment coming for 120 years as he built the ark, which again, we're going to look at more deeply in a few minutes. But here's, this, here, here's some symbolism and similarities. So for Noah, the ark was his salvation. The ark provided him with the way out. The ark provided him with salvation from the flood. That's how he, he had to believe God at his word. He had to believe that what God was saying was true. And he had to follow God's words to, the, to, to, to what he was saying so that he could be saved from the flood. Without the ark, without God's words to him and believing them and following through with them, he would not find salvation. He would drown just like everyone else. We have to understand that. He would have drowned just like everyone else if he didn't follow what God wanted him to do and build that boat. Uh, Acts, 5, or Acts 15, 11 says this, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So in Noah's day, the ark represented salvation. In our day today, Jesus is our salvation. The ark was a type of Christ that provided salvation for those that were, that were in it. And Jesus provides salvation for those that place their faith in him. It's a really cool uh, uh, similarity. So the idea is that, the big idea, salvation is made available to everyone. Salvation is made available to everyone. Everyone on the face of the planet has an opportunity to be saved from our sin. Again, until we become up close and personal with that sin, we will have a hard time drawing close to God. Second symbolism and similarity here that we have is that baptism, uh, baptism, what we think of baptism now, uh, is a cleansing Baptism is a form of cleansing. It, it, it washes us. It says that Jesus baptizes us. Um, when the Bible says that we are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is that in through God we are baptized, we are cleansed. And there's a, a really cool verse that shows how this happens for us today. First uh, John 1, 7 says, But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So today we have the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all our sin, from all our wickedness, from all our evil ways. It cleanses us, makes us new. And then in Noah's day, the flood was the cleansing. The flood cleansed the earth of evil. 
And God actually promised that he would never do that again. But the idea here is that the flood cleansed the earth. Today, the blood cleanses our hearts. It's not external, it's internal. The blood of Christ will cleanse us. So this, here's the big picture again. Judgment is made aware to everyone. Salvation is made available to everyone, and judgment is made aware to everyone. Second Peter 2.5 says this, And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. He warned the world. For 120 years, he told people, there's a flood coming. Why are you, no, why are you building this boat? Because there's a flood coming. It's going to wipe out the entire world. You, we, if you're not on the boat, you drown. You die. For 120 years, he told us. I could only imagine that only, probably after a decade, it became a joke. Noah, there, Noah there's no flood, bro. Like, there's no water. There's no rain. We're in the desert. He, he's building this boat in the desert. He probably looks really silly to a lot of people on the outside. I would even say that he probably sounds, he, he, his family would not even become embarrassed at Noah. Oh, Noah, why are you saying these things? Everyone's laughing at us. And Noah was convincing his family, guys, believe, in, believe me, believe in this God who I'm talking about. He is going to do this. Judgment is coming. And he proclaimed that judgment. And only his family was on the boat. That's all, all who believed him. Now, here's what I know today. I know that for 2,000 plus years, we've been telling the world that Jesus is coming back. For 2,000 plus world, years, we've been telling the world that Jesus is coming back. After a while, I can understand why that seems a little silly. It's been 2,000 years, guys. Can we stop now? Like, it looks silly now. You look a little weird. It's been 2,000 years. It was only 120 for Noah. It's been 2,000 plus for us. I can understand the difficulty of our world buying into some of the claims because it just takes so, it's taken so long to come to fruition. Matthew 3, 2 says this, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, it's approaching. It's coming. It's near. One of my favorite verses is in 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, no, no. He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. He wants all people to come to him. And so what seems slow to a lot of people is just God's patience with us saying, I don't want anyone to be destroyed. I want to wait and I want to provide time for you. But some, I can understand 2,000 years, that's a long time. It's a long time. So why won't we surrender? Why is it that some, I, I didn't surrender to God's voice. I didn't surrender to God's message until I was 21 years old. And I think that there are three global reasons, three big kind of big picture reasons why we don't surrender initially to put our faith in God. And if you're in here and, and, and you have yet to do that, I, I would urge you to reflect on some of these and ask yourself very truly, is this me? Is this what's holding me back? 
Could this be? And for those of you that do follow Christ, that, that, are, that, that live for him, and you're struggling to share that with a family member or a friend or a coworker, and it seems like there's just a lot of dead ends and it's a struggle and it's hard and there's a lot of backlash and a lot, it's, it's, your heart is burdened for those people. I want you to know to keep, per, keep pursuing and keep persisting because it's the Holy Spirit that does the work. But here's some things that can hold us back. Number one, we are unaware of our personal sinfulness. We are unaware of our personal sinfulness. We don't think we're that bad. That's one of the major, that's why I say, until we come up close and personal with our sin, we will probably not draw close to him because we don't think we're that bad. There's a, there's a very well-known verse, Romans 3.23, that says, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So for any person that thinks that, that, that the gospel message doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, isn't for them, that they're beyond it, that it doesn't relate to them. This is the verse. Everyone has sinned. Every single person on the face of the planet has fallen short of God's glorious standard. Most people think that this is not them. Secondly, we are unashamed of our personal wickedness. We are unashamed of our personal wickedness. Jeremiah 6.15 says something very insightful. It says, Are they ashamed of their disgusting actions? Not at all. They don't even know how to blush. Therefore, they will lie among the slaughter. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. Now, this seems really harsh. And I understand that some of these verses are difficult. When I was first trying to make sense of the Bible, um, and I was somewhat interested in things, uh, I, I didn't really, these kind of verses almost pushed me a little bit away. I'm like, well, there's the heart. There's the harsh God. I, yeah, yeah, the loving God you guys tell me about. Well, here's, how do, you, how do you rectify this? And I would say this. I would say that when our God gives us and warns us and provides us with a revelation of what is going to happen to us outside of him, that is the most loving thing he could ever do. It's the most loving thing he could ever do. Uh, I've shared this story before uh, a few years ago, and I, it's, the, it's the best story that I can think of to share with you uh, about uh, how this looks. But I had a friend, and he has a daughter, and his, he, his daughter was playing a game with him. And his daughter, uh, there was like a peekaboo game. She's, I think she was five or six at the time. And uh, she can't see over the cars. They're in a parking lot and she's running around the cars and his dad, her dad's like, stop, stop it. Don't run. I, you can't see what's happening. Stay right here with me. Stay right next to me. Stay right next to me. And so then, she, you know, she, she doesn't realize how, you know, that there's real danger. Either she doesn't think that's true or whatever, but she continues to do it. Finally gets her home. Um, and when they get out of the car, she wants to play the game some more. And so she runs and she's running and she's running out into the street and he sees a truck coming and he sees a trajectory that her, that, that his child, his lovely child, beautiful child and the truck are going to collide. And in that collision, there's only one winner. And in his, the only way that he knew how he literally from the top of his lungs just screams, stop, stop. I'm not going to yell because the people in the back will be mad at me for yelling into the microphone. I got the thumbs up. That, thanks for thinking of that. So um, they, but she, she, he yells at her at the top of his lungs as loud as he can, angry, stop it. You stop it right now. You stop it. Is that a 
loving father or, an, or a mean father? That is a loving father because he sees exactly what's in her future and he doesn't want her to experience it. And so he yells at her to stop, to get her attention. This is not a joke anymore. This is not funny anymore. This is a very serious situation where she will die. And he does not want her to die. And so he screams at her. Now, the neighbors are probably calling 911 right now. Everyone's probably coming out of their house going, what is happening? The lunatic across the street's going crazy again. But in that moment, he is probably the most loving he has ever been. Because he is trying to save her life. And I would say that every mean, hurtful, emotionally frustrating thing that God ever says is probably the times that he is the most loving because he is trying to save us. He is trying to get our attention and it won't work any other way other than to just say it how it is. Without me, you die. There is a very real hell there is a very real torture. There is a very real place that you will go for, that, that you, I don't want you to go. And so I'm going to tell you straight to your face because I love you. To withhold that from you would not be loving. Do you guys realize that? For God to withhold that from us would not be loving. So I think that sometimes we are unashamed of our personal wickedness. And we would rather, we would rather gloss over it and not make a big deal about it. Sometimes I use biblical terms and biblical ideas to get me out of having to feel this way. Things like, well, I'm just a work in progress. So, you're, so you should do that on purpose? Well, I'm, I'm a little bit better than I was 10 years ago. See, I think sometimes my heart isn't as in tune with what hurts God as much as he would want me to be. Because when my son says stuff to me, it hurts. He's five and it hurts. He's my son and he says things and I'm like, oh, look at all the things that I've done for you though. We just sat down and I played a hundred games of Uno with you for four hours. And I let you win some of them because I know you get mad when I win. And in everything in me, my competitive part of me, laid that down and let you win Uno. I would stack the deck so that you would get more draw fours than I would get. Because I know how to do that and you don't know, but I'm letting you win to experience joy and so you're not angry because I could beat you every time if I wanted to. I have to, I have to ask him a hundred times, you sure you don't have a four? Because even though you don't have that color, do you have a four? Do you have an eight? Because you could change the, oh yeah, I have one of those. I'm helping you through the game. I'm helping you win. And then in one instantaneous moment, you're stupid. Yeah. (laughs) But in, in that moment, I still love him. So I always think to myself, when I think of the things that I listen to, the music, the the things that I watch on TV, that just don't seem to bother me. But they're supposed to probably. But they don't. I'm admitting to you today that there are things that should probably bother my heart and they don't. Because I'm unashamed of some of my personal wickedness and I need God 
to do something crazy in my heart, to open my eyes to the truth of what's actually going on in front of me. Crude jokes. It's clear that my conscience isn't always on its A-game. So the last thing, the last thing here, is that we are unmoved by the gospel message. We are unmoved by the gospel message. Uh, this is probably the biggest thing that I, I would want to give to you is to say the gospel message is the most beautiful message that you will ever understand. And in Luke seventeen twenty six, it says this. It says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. It'll be 120 years of warning people, of telling people it's coming. There's judgment on its way. It's coming. I'm warning you. I know it, doesn't, I know it takes some faith to believe. I understand the difficulties that are before you, but it's coming and it's really coming. And only eight people were saved in that flood. When, it, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. You see, the message of hope was ignored then, and it's ignored now, and it will continue to be ignored by the majority of people. Remember, Jesus said the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Giving your life to Christ is the most difficult thing you will ever do. Because it is shedding you of all your ego, all your pride, all your arrogance, all your self-will, all your selfishness. It puts you in a place where you are not in control of your life. You are not calling the shots. You are not in charge. You are giving your life to God for the rest of your life. And from that day on to the day you die, you are no longer the same person you were. That is the most difficult choice anyone will ever make. And the Bible is very true when it says only a few will find it. Jesus died a very real death on a very real cross for your very real sins. It was excruciatingly painful and he was separated for the very first time in his infinite existence from his father. He was slaughtered so that you wouldn't have to be. He allowed himself to be murdered for you. He was slain in your place, willingly killed for your restoration. But this message lands on deaf ears and hard hearts if we are numb to and blinded from our sins. This message is of hope, and it is a message of hope. It's a message of glorious, unrelenting hope that you, yes, even you, can be saved from your sin. So this message of hope is only received in the most fullest sense when we realize our eternal need. And I'll say it again. It's when we are up close and personal with our sin that we will begin to authentically draw close to him. Because we will recognize two things. We're way worse than we thought we were. And God loves us way more than we thought he did. Because even when we see ourselves for who we really are, and then we see God for who he really is, our hearts begin to change. I know that these things on the outside are difficult to grasp. I told you in the beginning this was going to be a difficult message. 
Uh, but the words of scripture, are definitely, they definitely don't pull any punches. And I hope that I've convinced you that God is most loving when he's revealing what's to come. And I have two last things I want you to understand. Number one, God wants to warn you about and save you from his judgment. He is not excited about what comes to people that don't find themselves in Christ. He wants to warn you about and save you from his judgment. And number two, he wants to tell you about and provide you with his salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ. So this morning, as it relates to our message, we're going to take communion. And there's two types of people in the room. There's those that get to celebrate their life in Christ. And there's those that need to surrender their lives to Christ. Take a hard look and ask yourself, which one am I? Do I get to celebrate what God has done in my life because I've given him my whole life? Maybe you're not good at it at times. I'm not good at it at times. But have you given God your life? You've given Christ your life. Then you get to celebrate. You get to celebrate as you take communion. You get to celebrate that he broke his body so yours would never break and he spilled his blood so yours would never be spilled. That's an enormous reason to celebrate this morning. If you haven't surrendered your life to Christ yet, there's no shame in holding off on taking communion and just reflecting on your life and his invitation to you for forgiveness. Archers are going to come forward. We're going to prepare ourselves for uh, passing out the elements. And I want you to wait until the end when we take communion together uh, as the family of God will pray. And they're going to pass out the elements and just hold on to them and we'll take them together. Uh, But our team is going to lead us in worship and allow us to uh, worship God as we prepare our hearts for communion. So let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this room you are working in hearts and you are allowing us the privilege of celebrating our life in you, God, that it is so good to celebrate who you are. God, I pray that we would be overjoyed with the fact that you have uh, given us the means to be saved through your son, that he died for us. God, I pray for each individual in this place that maybe hasn't made that choice, God, that you would begin to work on their heart and you would do what no man, what no preacher, what no neighbor, what no coworker, what no one can do but you, and you would begin to reveal yourself to them and that they would give their lives to you this morning, God. We pray that you would do the work in our hearts that we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.